Greetings and salutations, creature lovers. This is Mr. Venom welcoming you to episode 13. Yes, lucky 13 of Creature Comforts. Joining me this week, as always, it is uh, Mr. Donanelli. How you doing, Don? Yeah, doing great. Always great to uh, talk about one of my favorite, uh, not just uh, special effects creations, but uh, one of my favorite memories growing up. There very awesome. And with us is Mr. Derek B. from the Cinema Attack Podcast. How you doing, Derek? I'm glad I'm here by Allah. <laughs> by, a lot of Allah references in this one, wasn't there? <laughs> All right. If you haven't figured it out by now, this week's movie, we decided to delve into the realm of both Sinbad and Ray Harryhausen with the second of the Sinbad trilogy. This is... The Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I didn't want to accidentally say the other thing we've been calling it. (laughs) Um, All right. So Golden Voyage of Sinbad, it comes to us from 1973. Obviously, as I said, this is the second of the Sinbad trilogy. The trilogy started with 1958's The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad. So apparently we missed the first six of them. Or they weren't filmed, so what are you going to (laughs) do? And then the trilogy culminates with 1977's Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, which is one of the earliest theatrical memories that I have. Yes, I saw this in theaters with my parents. Both my parents were big, like, you know, sword and sandal type fans, you know, Roman Empire type stuff, blah, blah, blah. So Sinbad, of course, you know, it's from the Middle East, you know, the, the legends and all. But it still kind of fit the the mold. And my mother was actually a big fan of John Philip Law at the time, too. Go figure. Man, did anybody else think that that was General Zod for like five (laughs) seconds, like a young General Zod? Yeah. (laughs) All right. Anyway, before we get into our discussion of the Golden Voyage of Sinbad, I thought we'd take this opportunity as this is the first Ray Harryhausen film that we've done on this series to kind of just talk a little bit about Harryhausen, his general influences, you know, maybe what was one of the first things you saw of his and what impression did that leave on you? Let's go ahead and start with Don. Don, tell me a little bit about your history with Ray Harryhausen films. He was uh, right behind Rodan as uh, one of the very first films that uh, I ever saw as a kid. I had gotten the movie bug and uh, I started scrolling through TV Guide trying to find stuff. And I, I found one called Clash of the Titans, <laughs> and uh, the description sounded really cool. So um, it said that there was like you know lots of monsters and you know I, I don't remember exactly what it was because it was the week the TV guy that you get on the on Sundays. So like the week that you you know like the week's programming and stuff. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't the, a huge blur, but it made it sound like really cool. Was, you know something about like a voyage and you know like realm of giant monsters and creatures and stuff like that. So I was like, ooh, sounds interesting. I had my grandmother tape it for me, and I got it home and watched it. And I remember the first part of it not really being that interesting, but then when the Kraken showed up, I was like, oh, my God, this thing is awesome. Just seeing it and seeing, like, you know, how he defeats the creature, and I'm pretty sure if we eventually cover it, I'll go more in depth about it. But I quickly found out that Harryhausen was, like, a big name, much like uh, Subaraya was. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I, I made the connection that Harryhausen and Subaraya were kind of compatriots, if not exactly, you know, friendly with each other, I, I quickly delved into his work. And um, he was part of the reason that I found American monster movies, discovering, you know, Beasts from 20,000 Fathoms and They Came from Beneath the Sea, um, 
I can't remember if I ever saw Earth versus the Flying Saucers, but hmm. a lot of it was my, my grandfather, as soon as he found out that uh, I was a huge fan of this, uh, one of the things he did was he got me into his movies. And he, kind of like you, Venom, um, he brought me into uh, the sword and sandal like Peplum films from Italy. Nice. Because, yeah, he was a huge fan of all that. Um, so he liked, you know, the Hercules and, you know, Pegas- you know Perseus and Ulysses mm-hmm. and, you know, all of those kinds of stuff. Like, you know, the Conquerors of Rome and, you know, Gladiators of the Poc- you know the Stadium and all that kind of stuff. So uh, he, that was one of, like, the stuff that he got me into watching. Through that, I ended up discovering uh, Jason and the Argonauts. And to me, that's still <laughs> my all-time favorite Harryhausen film, monster movie or not. Jason and the Argonauts is still uh, one of my all-time favorite films. So uh, I eventually, you know, again, much like uh, Clash of the Titans, you know, one to cover in the future. But yeah, yeah, he he was a huge uh, influence. Subaraya held my heart, but uh, Harryhausen was uh, definitely a very close second. That's awesome. Very cool backstory. Why don't you come in here and tell me about your love of all things Harryhausen? Yeah, he's fucking great. He's Harryhausen. Like. <laughs> I want to say it was either the movie we were talking about today or the one that came before it. I probably, yeah, I think it was like the Sinbad movies. That's the, like when I first like, wow, look at this effects. Like who did this? You know what I mean? And then subtly like going to like be some 20,000 fans. Oh, he did this one too. 20 million miles to earth. Oh, you did that too. Oh yes. Give me more of that. You know, first men to the moon, mysterious Island, Jason the Argonauts. Oh, so good. Clash of the Titans. Which, yeah, that's the only movie where you're like, yeah, there's great special effects, plus you got Burgess Meredith as a Greek. (laughs) You know? It's great. Definitely. Uh, For me, my story kind of reflects Don's story, but instead of Clash of the Titans, it is, as I already said, it is uh, Sinbad and the Eye of the Tiger, like I said, from 1977. I I have a very distinct memory of watching that with my parents in the theater, having an absolutely great time. You know, the Minotaur in that one, and of course, the lovely Jane Seymour to kind of contrast Carolyn Monroe in this film. And Mm. it kind of just went from there. I mean... I, I saw Clash of, the, Clash of the Titans is another one I saw in the theater. I, that was one that I, I saw the trailer for, and I was, you know, I, some friends of mine, actually, we all went to see it. This is before the days of PG-13, folks, so 11- and 12-year-olds can go to the theaters by themselves and see PG movies back then. Because I, I would imagine it would have been PG-13. There's a small amount of violence in here, blah, 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 and, you know, some, you know, sexual suggestions, if you will. I mean, Carolyn Monroe's... <laughs> boobs are out a lot of this film not completely out but let's say uh, massive cleavage all throughout this film i was thirsty the whole time oh hey i don't blame you brother this uh this film is definitely a great film probably just a half step behind eye of the tiger for me and then you know you go back and watch seventh voyage and, and to see the difference in harryhausen's work between 1958 and 1973 just ah so beautiful just the, how much more fluid the stop motion is, everything else. It's just amazing to see the man, to see his work, and to see it just get better as the years go along. And, you know, Clash of the Titans, holy crap. I mean, that movie was just so spectacular. As a kid, it was one of the greatest things I'd ever seen. I mean, it was like Star Wars. It was just one of those awe-inducing films that, and, you know, and Don kind of, you know, mirrors that with his uh, reading of the description and then having his grandma record it. I mean, yeah, it, it, 
it's such a spectacular film. Folks, I guarantee you we're going to do Clash of the Titans on this show. There's no way it won't happen. It's just And I will be stoned as all hell there in that episode. And I don't blame you. <laughs> it's, it's such a joyous film, just filled with creatures and action and everything else. <laughs> Faceless Vizier, the death fight of the centaur on the griffin, the six-armed goddess of evil. The flying homunculus. Siren on a rampage. The duel with the vanishing sorcerer. <laughs> the one eyed centaur. mentioned earlier this is the golden voyage of sinbad 1973 this is directed by gordon hessler written by brian clemens and ray and and look at that ray harryhausen actually has a writing credit how cool is that he also has a producer credit and i think i saw his name in the credits a couple of more times too so harryhausen yeah i I can't remember i was gonna say i i I think i saw him pop up like three or four times so Mm -hmm. i i I think he was pretty like hands-on with this one because I know that the fantasy stuff was always the one that he wanted to do rather than like the dinosaurs or the monster stuff. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he had a, like a little bit more um, like hands on. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So this film starts stars, excuse me, John Philip Law as Sinbad, also as young General Zod, uh, because I was convinced it was General. I actually had to go to Arabian IMDb Zod. and look it up. 
Yeah, I just, I was so, I mean, my wife was literally telling me, no, there's no way that's Zod. And I'm like, it looks so much like him. And yeah, I go to IMDb and she's right again. So yeah, what a great look for John Philip Law. Because when you actually look up pictures of him, he doesn't look like Sinbad. They actually did a really good job of bronzing his skin and putting that cool beard on him and everything else. He barely looks like himself, so that's acting, my friends. And, of course, our heroine of the film. Well, heroine, she doesn't really do anything action-y, if you will. Let's say the love interest. Played, of course, by Carolyn Monroe. Uh, The lovely Carolyn Monroe. And then the Black Prince Cora, played by Tom Baker. Should have won an Oscar. Honestly, I that was probably one of my the high points of this film for me too. There's a scene in this where he's performing a spell and I swear to god my wife and I were both like he's masturbating. He's absolutely masturbating. He's breaking a sweat. He's rolling his eyes. We just couldn't get over how into that spell he was. Of course, throughout the film, they do explain that, you know, he's losing life force every time he performs black magic. That's kind of a common theme that we've seen in a lot of, you know, content over the years. But Mm -hmm. let's go ahead and start with our general thoughts. And let's go ahead and get Derek in here first. Derek, what are your general thoughts on the golden voyage of Sinbad? Man, I was watching this today, and it kind of took me back because I, I I could see a lot of like filmmakers fucking love this fucking movie. <laughs> I could just tell right away, like, you know, I know like Ridley Scott was a fan of this movie when he was making Kingdom of Heaven because <laughs> that movie and this movie are the only two movies where I see a guy walking around with a fucking middle face. You know, <laughs> definitely influenced Ridley Scott for Kingdom of Heaven, mm-hmm. and. uh yeah, there's a lot of, like, like even some of the musical score, I could hear, like, like the fantasy, like, boat sailing and stuff. It kind of sounds like the score of Jaws and shit, like, which uh, I'll kind of get into a little Jaws, more <laughs> Jaws references later when I get to the biggest cameo ever in the movie. <laughs> but uh, I just loved, like, I this movie just sucked me in. Like, I love the musical score, you know. Yeah, it's a little bit more slow-moving than, like, say like a usual like creature feature that we fucking cover on this show but i was just into the story you know the story beats were i was just in you know i kind of like was glad we did this one instead of like our usual fear because you know we had barely nothing to talk about for cemetery gates (laughs) i also think this is like probably the closest interpretation of like actually doing like sinbad right if that makes sense because you know even like with like all the Arabic symbolism, even they fight like an Arabic God in the movie, mm-hmm. which I thought was really fucking cool. And I didn't really realize that at the time. And, you know, we made a joke earlier. They do say Allah a lot in this movie, but I get what they're doing. They're trying to make it authentic as mm-hmm. they could. You know what I mean? I like the side characters. I love his fucking first mate uh, by Allah. Just throw it overboard. Come on, just throw it. <laughs> well, <laughs> He's a drunken stuff and man, oh man, like the, you know, it does pick up a lot at the fucking climax. You get some great action sequences throughout it, but like it's all balls out where we get like this great, like fucking Senator Cyclops and fucking Griffin fight, which I really enjoy, <laughs> uh, you know, and you know, you know, it's kind of a hokey happy ending, but a lot of these fantasized movies do end that way. And, I kind of dig it because it's visually stunning at the same time. <laughs> and, you know, it's just, I just was in for the ride. Uh, I, I really 
like I was saying today, this is probably one of like I remember watching this like all the time as a kid, and I I just felt like being a kid again watching this movie, and I was like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> awesome, Don, come on in here, brother. Yeah, I I have a lot to enjoy with this one as well. Not my favorite of the trilogy. I, I still like Seventh Voyage a little bit more. Um, I, I think that one's just a little bit more tailored to my taste than this, but. It's still a fun time. Um, I I still really like the setup here. Uh, I think the uh, motivation for going out into, uh, you know, finding this strange, um, I guess you could call it um, uh, an amulet of some kind, because they never really make it clear what this uh, jewelry thing is supposed to be. You know, there's, uh, you know, these three shapes that they're supposed to come together, but yet each one acts separately and you're, you know, they never really put everything together, but it's implied that it was supposed to have been. It's not really that explained all too well. Um, you know, the, the setup about how they're supposed to, you know, solve this mystery back at their home, you know, back in the kingdom where everything takes, you know, starts. Never, They never really return to there, so they never really get any kind of closure with that. But, yeah, beyond that, the, I, I still really like this. Um, I, I still find that, you know, the creatures are fun. You don't have as much of them, but uh, they make a little bit more of an impact when they show up. Yeah. Um, I, I love the little homunculus thing. That thing is so fucking cute. <laughs> <laughs> Demon monkey. Yeah, yeah. I felt bad when they were killing them. Like, oh. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's cute. I, I really want one myself. Um, I know what it takes to make one, though, but I'm not interested. But uh, if you can make me one, I'd love to have one. Yeah, the, the Griffin-Centaur fight is really cool. Kind of, uh, you know, just shows up last minute. It's like, hey, you. And it's, you know, just it becomes kind of weird. But I, I love the tribe. I love the, you know... You know, it's it's always like it's just builds to this one strange thing, and then all of a sudden, you know, here comes something else, and then here comes something else, and then here comes something else, and it, it kind of keeps you off balance a little. Yeah, and then uh, my favorite uh, my favorite part of the whole film, Kali. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that thing is just amazing. I absolutely love that thing. Uh, one of the best sequences Harryhausen has ever conceived. Um, just that thing coming to life. Yeah, there, there's a lot to like here. Uh, maybe a, a bit overlong, but oddly, I, I didn't mind how fa- how this one was paced. Um, I know Derek was saying it was kind of slow. I didn't feel it. I thought this thing breezed by. I, I was kind of no. I was I, I I thought it breezed by too. I was just saying that you know it's, it has a little bit more of a story to tell than like yeah the usual shit we tell we talk about usually on this show you know yeah it's I mean? usually like you know t- 20 minutes in you figure out what's happening and then it's, or it's just like, like mad god where we had to guess what it's about yeah <laughs> <laughs> but uh yeah um I, I still really like this. It's definitely up there. Um, I mean, like I said, I still prefer Seventh Voyage a little bit more because I think there's more monsters and creatures in there. But yeah, this one's still a lot of fun. Uh, I, I don't see as much innovation with Harryhausen. I think it's just you know him, you know, showing off what he can do rather than attempting something new, which is I think part of the reason why I like Seventh Voyage a little bit more, but I mean, this is still Harryhausen at his peak, you know, there's still a lot to enjoy with the work he he does here, so yeah, fun time all around. Mm, Would you trim off five minutes and put another creature in there? Maybe, but uh, I I still really like it as is. I 
of course, am a big fan of this movie. I'm, I, I actually am the opposite of Don. I'm going to say I and a Tiger is my favorite, mainly because of the place it holds in my heart. Like I said, one of the first movies I've, I saw in the theater, or at least have a memory of seeing in the theater. This I would have watched this for the first time probably like a year after seeing Eye of the Tiger, because once I saw Eye of the Tiger in theaters, I I would have gone back and checked out the other two as soon as they were available in my video store. I remember Golden Voyage was available right away. Took a little bit more time to get to Seventh Voyage, but I did eventually get a chance to check that out. And yeah, I genuinely love this trilogy, all three of them now. I'm going to disagree with Don ever so slightly on the pacing of the film. The pacing of the film isn't an issue. It's the fact that there's a lot of character development in the first and second act of this film. You get that little, you know, little demon monkey that's basically Prince Kura's helper, aid, whatever you want to go with, lackey. And then, you know, we get a quick scene with him. We don't even really see him up close. We see him far away, like up in the sky, dropping something on Sinbad's ship. And then we go almost at 30... 30 to 40 minutes without another creature. We get a lot of character development of Sinbad, his crew. We meet a merchant on on land. You know, once they go on land to, you know, load up on supplies and things, we, we meet a merchant. We get the backstory of his son who ends up joining Sinbad at the behest of his father. And then Sinbad also mildly falls in love or with uh, Mariana, who is this merchant's slave. I guess he notices a tattoo, an eyeball tattoo on her hand, is instantly intrigued and decides to ask if he can have her, too. The merchant just wants to get rid of his son more than anything, his lazy, <laughs> loot-playing, alcoholic son who just does nothing but drink and party all the time. Obviously, Sinbad doesn't want to take him. Just like any good captain, you know, he knows this kid's going to bring the whole ship down. But obviously, once he meets Mariana and he sees the mark on her hand, he kind of relents and says, okay, I'll take the gold pieces, your son and Mariana. The merchant happily gives Mariana to him. And, you know, off we go. But like I said, man, there's like a a good 35 to 40 minutes without creature and for me personally i still like the story I, I genuinely do but if i'm watching something specifically that's ray harryhausen i want to see some creatures i want to see yeah. some battles ultimately i am very happy with the creatures we get here <laughs> I, I really like the miniclops a lot I, I was thinking about calling him a cytor but that sounds like a comic book supervillain. so i'm gonna go with miniclops <laughs> mm. um I thought his design was really, really well done. And yeah, the Griffin fight is just amazing. I absolutely love that thing. Yeah, just because cause when it comes out of nowhere, I'm like, yo, this is a Griffin in the movie, yo. <laughs> exactly. I really like the figurehead fight, too, when the figurehead from uh, Sinbad's ship comes to life. Yeah. That, that's... that's actually the first creature, aside from the homunculus that we see, is, you know, the figurehead coming to life. And... That was a cool little fight, if not a little slow paced, because, again, you've got this big wooden creature, you know, made of wood who's come to life. And she's, you know, you know, she doesn't have the advantage of, of six harms like, you know, Mahakali does. Um, but she and she's fighting multiple men. Obviously, she's made of wood and they're attacking her with torches. So, you know, anything I would imagine anything made of wood is terrified of fire. But. It's still made for a good first encounter in the movie, you know, for that first um, interaction with a creature for this crew and Sinbad. I thought it was a really well-made scene. All in all, I really, <laughs> I, I, I like all the action in this movie. Um, I'm right there with Don Mahakali uh, is just an amazing creature. Mahakali, of course, um, 
being the multi-armed Indian god. She is the goddess of time and death, for those who don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she is actually a an Indian god who is, you know, revered to this day. So very cool of Harryhausen and this film crew to take a piece of, you know, actual mythology and history. Well, maybe not history, but mythology and uh, get that in here. You can de- you can tell that this movie is very much a Middle Eastern film, not not a Middle Eastern production necessarily. But just, you know, all, all the prayers, all the constant mentions of Allah, plus Sinbad and his, and his proverbs. All th- throughout the first act of the movie, half of his dialogue are proverbs and metaphors and things. It's kind of interesting. Almost trying to make himself out to be the wise captain that he is. But yeah, like I said, just, uh, you know, we get, we get an, a pseudo Wizard of Oz type creature, which is basically just a human and like, you know, he basically looks like the Wizard of Oz. Like the head- the Oracle? Yeah, exactly. The floating. You know head. who that is, right? Um, who the Oracle actually is? I do not. The actor who played him? No, sir. It's fucking Robert Shaw. No shit. And yeah. You didn't even talk about fucking Jaws. What the hell? We <laughs> <laughs> um, was talking about Jaws earlier. I'm like, yeah, the cameo. <laughs> that is awesome. Very cool. <laughs> and he sounds like Danny DeVito and. Batman Returns? A little bit, actually. Yeah, he does have a little New York twang to his voice. Yeah, that's great. Uh, But it's a cool little appearance, absolutely. I did like it. You know, rather than going with yet another creature to go with a superimposed human face, I thought was a a really cool decision. Eventually in the film, we get the the cannibals from Cannibal Holocaust showing up, except they're green for some reason. Yeah, they're Hulk fans. Yeah, they're really big Hulk fans because they are just green from head to toe. They lose Some... Ringo fans. <laughs> Absolutely. No, that's right. The timeline would have been right around, right? Right around, uh, maybe a little bit early. I think uh, Hulk was late 70s, but yeah. Yeah, we get these weird cannibals who, you know, they, they worship Mahakali, and then when Prince Korra brings Mahakali to life, suddenly they all worship Korra, you know, because you know, him and Mahakali... Uh, kind of get together. Or, and and you know, when that happens, friends. yeah, I was like, this guy is the best bad guy ever because he's going to take these people's gods to do their fucking... But he's like, I'm going to take your yeah. god from you. <laughs> no, it's it's absolutely brilliant, honestly. I mean, yeah, it's a, the only way you're going to you know escape ge- getting eaten by these guys, so uh, you might as well, yeah. I will say that I kind of felt like the Mahakali should have won that fight. Didn't it seem like six arms and six swords? I she should have knocked off a bit more, a few more of the crew than she did, because yep. I think she only definitively kills one. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Sure, number two. I mean, again, we're talking about a statue probably made of, you know, marble or, you know, some hard material. So, again, just because she comes to life doesn't mean she has the dexterity of a human. So, you know, obviously, you know, you get the slow you know, stop motion movement that we, that, you know, we get from Harryhausen, which, you know, the actors are trying their hardest to, you know, make it look as realistic as possible. God bless them. They're trying. But ultimately it works. You know, even if by today's standards, the action might be a little bit slow. It absolutely works for, you know, a piece like this, especially a period piece. Did you notice that Sinbad didn't even kill the first two monsters? It was fucking the fucking beggars, the the guy's son that they take with him. Yeah, exactly. The, the total waste. <laughs> yeah, he becomes like the hero of the movie. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah, man, what a shot that was, by the way. I mean, he shot at this little homunculus, like, from a good 20, 30 feet away and nails it right in the middle of the chest. Then he just pushes Callie over. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy, man. 
for yeah, for somebody who didn't want to come out to see, you know, at first, who was adamant about going out to see, he's actually turning into a pretty uh, handy crew member. Sam and Sinbad's like, I'm glad I picked this guy up. Exactly. But does anybody else feel bad for the Griffin? Griffin? Yeah, he yeah. he would have won that fight if the fucking Caron didn't interfere. Yeah, and and why didn't Sinbad and any of his buddies help? Like they literally sat there, watched the Griffin get cheated and did nothing. And then as soon as the Griffin is dead, they jump into battle. And it's like, well, why did you wait till now? That seems shitty. But, you know, again, you I know. think it's the honor of the fight. I think they're the they're supposed to be the honor, the, you know, heroic, honorable ones. They're going to, you know, fight clean. So sure. I think they're just staying at, staying out of the side and letting it fight for itself. And then, you know, because it lost by cheating, they come in to help at that point. Take revenge. Like, yeah. yeah. I, I guess. I guess. I don't know. I, I guess I would have done it differently if I was I guess there. it was also part of the prophecy, too, that Robert Shaw, Danny DeVito said. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. Because at this point, they were already very clear that Prince Kuda is, uh, you know, taking every advantage he possibly can. I mean, when him and Sinbad first met, Sinbad challenges him to a sword duel. And then, of course, you know, he backs out of it, gives the sword to Mahakali, and she has the fight for him. So, yeah, I just, by love, the time, that. Mm-hmm. I just love his, that, like, from that whole beginning, I'm like, this is like, uh, I love Seven Voyages of Sinbad, but like it's kind of hokey when the bad guys join forces with him in some scenes. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, this guy just wants this everything on his own and just wants to kill. Yeah, so I yeah, got respect. Absolutely, yeah, I, I give him credit for that. But and he, but like I said, by the time they get to that last fight with the Menaclops and the Griffin, they've already established that Kura is a cheating piece of shit. So, I mean, th- this goes beyond honor, because once the honor has been broken, and like I said, I'm kind of a petty person, so obviously, you know, I-, I see the Griffin is on our side, and he's getting cheated, I'm jumping in instantly, but again, that's just me. The Well of Souls, that was a interesting little scene where basically some, what, some nomads found the Well of Souls, and they decided to build this temple around it, knowing that it would eventually, you know, create some fountain or some... I, I don't know. I, I forget the exact explanation there of the Well of Souls and everything that's going on there. But it does seem like like Don mentioned that, you know, for the first half of the movie, we're looking at this amulet of some kind that's been broken into three pieces. And when the first two pieces come together, it's kind of a big deal. It's like this big aha moment. And then Sinbad realizes that it's part of a map and he actually, you know, shines it onto a wall that has another part of the map on it. It's kind of obvious with things like this, with amulets like this, it's either a map or a key. You know, yeah. 99% of the time, those Yeah, it's the Raiders of the Lost Ark moment. Exactly, yeah. So it, it was a cool moment. I mean, when you know, when they figured out that it was a map and they figured out where they you know, needed to go. Unfortunately, of course, they were being eavesdropped by, you know, Korra's little uh, demon monkey. So obviously Korra knows everything that they do, blah, blah, blah. And then uh, back to the Well of Souls, you know, when we get to the end of the film, the fountain coming out of the well starts to change color. It changes color. I, I don't know how it bases its color change, but I mean, we see the thing in just straight white, we see it in gold. We see it in red. We see it. In, I well, think the red was the blood because yeah, the, the, the red is obvious. Exactly. The blood fountain, uh, which is probably one of my favorite scenes in this movie is after Sinbad, you know, kills Prince. Kula. Yeah. Fitty, Fitty Ravler as he's like, yeah, I'm going to do that one day. 
There you go. As soon as Kuda's dead body falls into the well, the mm. fountain turns red, and it's, and instantly I yell out in my living room, "Blood fountain!" I love it. You know, shining, it's, it's like shining blood red too. It's, it's damn red. It's like that bright seventies red that that I like. Oh, it was so cool. And then you know, once Kuda's body is kind of washed away, and basically he's, uh the fountain or the well of souls kind of relaxes to the point where Sinbad and Mariana can see their reflections. And earlier in the film, they talk about how uh, the well, you know, gives, you know, whoever finds it first, it gives them these abilities to be able to see the past, see the future, things like that. Sinbad and Mariana look into the fountain. They see Sinbad dressed in kingly regalia. He's got a crown on. He's got a big robe. Mm-hmm. I honestly thought Mariana was going to be dressed like a queen or something, but Mariana's uh, reflection was exactly the same. And at that moment, I think... Uh, at that moment, that's when they pull the the crown, or the crown kind of makes itself appear. It comes out. to who it sees it, first. Exactly, it kind of comes out of the well, kind of you know, up from the water. Sinbad grabs it, and at that moment, you know, obviously the well or whoever kind of expects Sinbad to put the crown on himself and become the new king, the king of what I don't know, whatever area they're all from. I mean, the island that they're on. Is uh, it's called Lumoria, Lumoria, something like that. <laughs> Instantly, I'm like Moria. The Balrog is going to be here. Nice, but no, no Balrog, no Gandalf. Oh well. But yeah, Lumoria is the name of the island where the Well of Souls is found. And you know, like I said, after Sinbad takes that crown, rather than putting it on himself, he does the noble thing and he gives it uh, to the king that's been with them, whose name I completely forgot. What the hell is his name? Vizier. Mm. Uh... Vizier sounds right, actually, yeah. So basically, earlier in the film, Sinbad, you know, meets uh, Vizier, someone who is wearing this golden mask. He doesn't right away, we we don't right away find out why he's wearing that mask, and I kind of like that. You know, it almost seems like he's just wearing the mask kind of to be a gladiator badass. But then later in the film, we actually find out that he was uh, part of an accident where they were in that room where they figured out that the amulet, the two pieces of the amulet come together to make a map. Vizier kind of makes the explanation that, you know, there was a fireball that basically appeared out of nowhere in here. It destroyed most of everything that was in here, including my face. And then later in the film, we even get a really cool shot of Vizier taking Yeah, it was great makeup. Oh, that was awesome. God, that was that was some of the best melted face makeup I've seen. You know, without being over the top goofy, it looked pretty damn cool, like really convincing. And I'll be, and the king, you know, vizier basically takes his mask off to scare off the cannibals, the green cannibals. Uh, I don't know why that scares them off, but whatever, it does scare them off. At one point, they also see the eyeball tattoo on Mariana's hand. So they, for some reason, they look at her as... I, I, I don't know. It was more like a sacrifice, right? Like they saw her as a sacrifice. She was the one to, for their other god. Exactly. She was the yeah, god. destined for their god or whatever. So, yeah. Was it that or was it the fact that she was just a woman? Because I didn't really. No, it was, was, the, well, they well, they at actually hands. a line of dialogue in the movie. Yeah, and the, the camera closes oh. up on her on the tattoo, and then you see the, the, the cannibals kind of instantly change their routine. They're like, oh, shit. So, oh, like, okay. I, I thought it was just because she was a woman. No, I, I mean, 
you know, like I said, that's what I got out of it anyway, is that they oh. that. And like I said, I wasn't 100% sure if they were going to make her queen or if they were going to sacrifice her. As it turns out, it looks like they were going to sacrifice her to the Miniclops, whatever his damn name is. It's too bad they don't give more of these creatures names. Like, I, I, they gave the Minotaur a name and Eye of the Tiger, but in here, and I mean actual names, not like, you know, Minotaur. Big balls. <laughs> Yeah, something, you know, give them like an actual name. But yeah, um, and obviously, even if the Miniclops did have a name, the, yeah, the know what I just realized English. So what's up? We should do like an after credits of this movie where we find out that Korra actually survived. And he, <laughs> and he turns the Well of Souls into the training camp of the League of Shadows and becomes Razal. Oh, stop it. Come on! It'd be great. Oh, <laughs> Ghoul is old as hell. So is this guy. That's true too. Valid, valid. But yeah, I mean, what can we talk about? I mean, we we've kind of brought up the individual creatures that we've seen in here. We you know we talked a little bit about Prince Korra and you know how he makes a pretty awesome villain. A little over the top and hokey at times, but his actions speak louder than his words, and I kind of like that about him. It works though for the like 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 when he's interacting with the little monkey thing like it actually <laughs> brings it like it, it actually feels like that he's actually looking at a real fucking winged monkey thing yeah and shit you know what I mean which I find cool and you know it's a lot of these movies where you, like you see people staring at oh I don't know what's there no valid valid. One scene in this one that kind of, I don't want to say it didn't work for me, but should I say I chuckled throughout the majority of it? And that's the invisible fight. Now, yeah. At, at one point, yeah, Prince Korra, uh, after he's made his wish to the Well of Souls, you know, he dropped the the uh, the, the thing, the amulet, into the water. Um, he basically starts to turn invisible, but he turns he turns invisible. Not gradually, but like by section, like one of his legs will go invisible, then part of his torso. So it's just a really, really odd effect. And then once he's 100% invisible, his sword is still visible. And I'm thinking to myself, well, wait a minute, wouldn't that be easier? Because the only thing you need to concentrate on in the sword is the sword, because when you're actually fighting in a sword fight, um, your combatant could kind of do like a juke move with their body, kind of go left or look like they're going left, but then they go right. If the if the fighter is invisible and all you see is the sword, they can't juke you. <laughs> so I, I thought that was kind of an odd decision by, um, I mean, obviously he's got to take any advantage he can to fight Sinbad. Sinbad is obviously a, y- a lot younger. I did mention earlier too how Korra's life force kind of gets drained uh, slowly throughout the film whenever he does uses his black magic. Um, by this point, though, he's kind of regenerated. He, the wrinkles on his face are gone, and he's mildly youthful. But, man, that just seemed like a really d- odd decision. Like, yeah. if you're going to go invisible, drop the sword, and, like, really fuck with Sinbad, you know? But to continue fighting just seemed like an odd decision. Yeah, it was kind of hokey. I'm like, that, that was, like, probably my least favorite part on this rewatch for me with this one. Yeah, <laughs> yeah same here. <laughs> Yeah, it's not it's not necessarily a bad scene. It's just it's a little silly, you know. Yeah, it's a little just hokey the way it's done with the effects. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like I said, just the decision to continue the fight while you're like, why not hide until you're completely invisible and then have a sneak attack? I don't know. It just seems like there's like four or five other things I could think of to do with invisibility that Cora didn't think of. But, you know, whatever. In the heat of the moment, you do what you know. 
Yeah, at least his death was better than the guy. The the guy's dragon just fell on him in the last movie. The, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, so it was it was a little more operatic, if that makes sense. But I get Absolutely. it. But it's a little hokey the way it was taken. Yeah. I also I do appreciate the fact that they don't like pigeonhole a romance into this one, even though it turns into a romance at the end. Like throughout it's not the movie, forced. it feels like it's earned. Exactly. Like there's no will they, won't they type thing. Like a Sam and Diane throughout the movie. Ooh, are they going to get together? Like they never even address it. Like there's nothing romantic about what Sinbad wants Mariana for until their voyage is over. And then it's like, okay, now I got this good looking girl and they have their little kiss and the movie ends. I, I, I appreciate that. Like I said, sometimes in action movies and even in horror movies, you get that forced romance uh, scenes in, included that just don't really feel like they fit in the movie. And we didn't get that with this one. And I appreciate that. Save all the crappy romance until the very end for that one final scene. And that's exactly the amount of romance I want in my movies. Almost none. <laughs> yeah. That's the that's only the downside of like seven voyage and even maybe fucking. Eye and, of the yeah. I had a tiger a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like they forced it a little bit too much because pretty much seven voyage is about like, that's why he's doing the fucking voyage to begin with. Because his girl got shrunk. Damn, Sinbad's a, like the James Bond of the seas, man. He has a different girl. He has his semen all over those girls. <laughs> I like it. Yeah. After them oh, are actually man. Bond girls. It's the fucked up thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, they, they have some good-looking women in these Sinbad movies. All three of them have, you know, amazing-looking women in them. So kudos there for whoever's doing the casting. But, yeah, I mean, what else can we say about Sinbad? Anything else you guys wanted to add? No, no, no like, like I said, I feel like this is, you know, if you're going to watch a Sinbad movie, I think this one's like the best representation of like the actual like stories that Sinbad actually came from, like the, just from the setting and the way, like it it just feels very more authentic than even like Kerwin Matthews and fucking he doesn't even have a fucking tan in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so like when you get the blue eyed Patrick Wayne playing him, you know, it, it just feels more authentic and like the way that the characters act. I feel like you know. It just feels like I, I'm not saying that even if, though this is my favorite Sinbad movie, I can see a lot of people not being their favorite, but I think it's probably like the best place to start with Sinbad, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, I go with that because that's what I did. I Well, I saw Eye of the Tiger. For, I saw him in backwards order. So I saw the last one first and the first one last. But still had a great time with all three of them. Like I said, on this watch, I just kind of noticed the runtime a little bit more. I'm not necessarily saying I wished it was shorter. I just wish they would have broken up the character development instead of having one big, long 30 to 40 minute chunk in the movie. And then all creatures, the rest of the movie, like kind of pepper it a little bit yeah. more throughout. Um, and then we don't notice the runtime as much because I definitely noticed the runtime during the first half of the film. You know, once the shit hits the fan... You 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 don't care about the duration. You're just having a great time. But or like I said early on, it's just a little slow for me. Not you know, not really a knock on the film necessarily. It's just a personal thing. Yeah, I get um, you. But yeah, oh man, as I peruse my notes, it seems like we 
talked about everything. I will say, though, God damn it, if my wife and I were laughing so hard at the scene where Prince Koro was trying to grab that last piece of the amulet yeah. and just kept pushing it closer and closer to the water, and my wife is literally yelling at the screen, lift your hand, you fucking idiot, because <laughs> he just keeps pushing it farther and farther out of his reach. Until I don't think he was pushing it further. He, I don't think he was pushing it out of his reach. I think he was pushing it into the fountain. Yeah, because I think the re- less the rest of his like life. Yeah, because his, his life. Oh, is that what was happening? Yeah, yeah. I was trying to pick it up because the the first that's the first one because the first one is the one that restores his life. He's pushing it into the fountain to extend it. That makes sense now. Okay, I did not know what was going on in that scene the whole yeah, because, time. Because he thought as, he's trying to pick it up. Well, because <laughs> as soon as he pushes it in, you you come up to him later on. Sinbad sees him, and he does the spell thing, and he's completely he's completely healed. He was pushing yeah. it. Yeah. He pushing okay. it in, yeah, he's pushing it in to extend his life because that was the three things. The first one was the Fountain of Youth. The second one was the Cloak of Darkness, which is the one that turns him invisible. And then the third one was the Crown of Untold Riches, which is the one that made him the king. Yeah. So he's pushing the first one in. That's the one that's going to extend his life and make him younger again. Yeah, and oh, I think yeah. it was like the way they filmed it, it was like the build suspense to see if he actually succeeded or not. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, that's why we do these shows, folks, because... We you don't always catch everything in the film and perfect example. Like I said, I, I just couldn't get over how funny that scene felt to me. No. Uh, I, <laughs> no, I get it. I'm I like will, that. I will say it makes a lot more sense that he's trying to push it in the water than grab it. But yeah, holy shit. Well, that's pretty much the end of anything I have left to say about the film. Um, any closing comments, gentlemen? Uh, Derek, we'll start with you. I think it's a great movie. Like like I said, it's my personal favorite of the Sinbad movies. It's, you know, I watched it today a little half-baked, which kind of helped me probably get me in the mood to watch it a little bit more. And I was just absorbed with the story. You know, like, you know, I was just laughing every day. Like, you know, I was thinking of, like, watching Kingdom of Heaven, the Ridley Scott movie, where I was just, you know, even because that's a fucking long, fucking epic yeah. fucking <laughs> movie. But, you know, uh, right in mood where you just, like, you know, you just get absorbed in those kind of stories some days and... Fucking yeah! I felt, this is the same. Like even like a, like I said, I was like picture seeing things I seen in other movies that were taken from this fucking movie. So I was kind of <laughs> like even like fucking uh, today. I just made the discovery that Tim Burton probably like Dane DeVito do the Oracle of Time voice. <laughs> <laughs> I'll go with that, yeah. uh, Don. Any closing comments? Uh, yeah, um, I mean, it's a lot of fun. Uh, maybe not, you know, the most creature-packed, which kind of knocks it down a little, especially because, you know, that's kind of what the show's about. You know, we want our creatures, and we want them on screen often. But, yeah, it, it's definitely enjoyable. Uh, you know, there's a lot going on here. Uh, you know, the mo- the creatures that we do get are really good and really fun. Uh, uh, not Like I said, not my favorite. I, I still prefer Seventh Voyage, but... Yeah, overall, it's a fun time in that, you know, it's a little out of the beaten path for, you know, your usual type of creatures. But, you know, mm-hmm. give it a shot. It's still uh, fun. And uh, maybe you'll learn a little thing about two or two about uh, history because it uh, definitely follows up with a lot of the local myths and legends and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, and, and also Gordon Hessler directed the fuck out of this. Like I was looking at his filmography the, like after I'm like, I wonder if I see any of his other movies and I'm like. I was yeah, kind of blown away that he did like Pray for Death and Rage of Honor, the Shokazugi movies. Nice. 
Yeah, he did that right on Satan's Claw, too. Oh, very cool. No, I reviewed that. He did Cry of the Banshee. Oh, Cry of the Banshee. Damn it, I always get those oh. two confused. Yeah, yeah, they're kind of similar, but, you know. And he, yeah, uh, it's same, same setup, yeah. Yeah, Murders. Oh, he did the Murders of the Rue Morgue, too, the 70s one. I nice. love that fucking movie. That's a good one. Uh, I haven't, seen, I haven't seen that one yet. Huh. I'll have to look into <laughs> it. Very cool. All right, folks. Well, that's it for episode 13. Thank you so much for joining us. On behalf of Derek B. and Mr. Doninelli, I am Mr. Venom saying thank you so much for joining us. Have a wonderful and happy Thanksgiving. Don't get into too many political arguments with your family because they never end up where you want it to go. So that's it for me, folks. Take care. Go north. Go north now. <laughs> Later. <laughs> So hardy and hale, I live on an island on the back of a whale. It's a whale of an island, that's not a bad joke. Its lord and its master is this handsome bloke. Ooh, the most remarkable, extraordinary fellow. I scare all creation on land or on sea, but talk about women, they all fall for me. I take my adventures wherever they're found. I go on the brag, folks, but I've been around. Who's the most phenomenal, extra special kind of fellow? Wow!